welcome to the Hunt Backcountry Podcast, presented by Exo Mountain Gear. This podcast and the gear that we produce at Exo Mountain Gear share the same purpose, to make you a more capable, confident, and successful backcountry hunter. This show is all about providing you with valuable information from experienced hunters. To learn more about the podcast or about our backcountry hunting packs, visit exomountaingear.com. Welcome to episode 171. Our guest is Ryan Lampers. Ryan is a repeat guest on this podcast, and he's been on a bunch of other podcasts as well. Ryan is an incredibly accomplished hunter, humble guy, and just all-around good dude. Someone that's always great to catch up with and honestly just soak up a ton of information from. So we talk with Ryan about several things. We kind of debrief a hunt he had this past fall, pull some lessons learned out of that, and there's so much good information in there. Uh, We also start the show talking a little bit about the elk shape camp that he was a part of. That camp is something that's put on by Dan Staten from Elk Shape. Uh, We actually talked with Dan about it before the first ever camp back in the Monday Minute episode 20, and since then... The camp has happened. Ryan was a part of that, and we debriefed that. Just a quick heads up, if you guys are interested in something like that, go to elkshape.com. Dan is running another camp weekend on June 21st through 23rd, so that's something you can learn more about, again, at elkshape.com. Also, just to give you guys a heads up, we mentioned this in a previous Monday Minute, but this conversation with Ryan is something that brought back to mind this roundtable podcast series that we're putting together, which Ryan will be a participant in. So this whole idea with this roundtable is to take single topics and hear from multiple experienced and accomplished hunters on those topics. So we'll have like five or six different episodes. Um, Each episode will have a single focus, a single topic, a single question, And then on each of those episodes, you'll hear from five or six different very experienced and accomplished hunters. So that's something we're really looking forward to and in the works. Just wanted to give you guys kind of a sneak peek at something that's coming and headed your way in this podcast series that we'll be releasing later this spring or early summer. Also, just a heads up again, this month, the podcast giveaway is with Easton Archery. Um, Steve and I have both been shooting Easton arrows and Easton shafts for years, uh, quite a few years, and they're just, they have something for everybody. So whether you want an arrow shaft that's kind of light and fast, whether you want something that's really heavy and hard hitting, whether you want something on the budget end or you have the budget, uh, to go like with the best arrows on the market, Easton has something for everybody. With the giveaway this month, you can win Easton Arrows. So just go to exomountaingear.com forward slash podcast, look for the giveaway link, and go get entered to win yourself some Easton Arrows this month in April of 2019 on the podcast. All right, enough of that rambling. Let's get right into this great discussion with Ryan Lampers. Buckle up. You're going to learn something. You're probably going to be inspired. And man, with the thaw with spring coming it's making me itch that much more to get out and get hunting and go exploring hope you guys are feeling the same let's tune into this one and learn from ryan ryan welcome uh welcome back to the hunt back country podcast man hey guys how's it going this morning 
It is good. You still uh, a lot of snow there still for you? Oh yeah, yeah. Out here in Three Forks, Montana, there's there's plenty of snow on the ground. Uh, I feel like it's I feel like it's summer. Uh, it's warmed up to 14 in the morning. Oh nice. And, uh, <laughs> and <clears throat> from where it was, it just feels warm. And uh, during the day, obviously, we're this week has been great. It got up into the 40s. Uh, a lot of grass starting to show out on my little piece here and um man that's it's going to help the deer out a lot if if it continues i think we have really nice weather for the next eight ten days uh getting up into the upper 50s or somewhere in there which is great Uh, we're we're excited hopefully uh we don't have another big blanket like we had and put these critters in jeopardy so with it being your first winter in montana is it everything you hoped or feared it would be (laughs) you know everybody when I, when we were coming over here uh we've got some family over here and everybody tells me about all the uh the snow shoveling you got to do right you're going to end up hating it just hating it because you do it every day and uh you know i guess where we bought our piece we got very fortunate uh we're outside of bozeman we're quite a ways uh 30 minutes west of bozeman so we're out in three forks and and man we only had a couple days where i had to had to shovel some snow and i, I broke out the uh, snow blower but um no it, it just blows it all the way out here it's a real dry snow and so every that was that was what everybody warned me about is you're just going to get so tired of shoveling but no it's not the case everything we hoped it was yes we uh we absolutely love this place it's great i love the cold weather um I am very okay with living in a puffy jacket uh, all winter long. It's great. <laughs> I mean, the sun's out all the time. It's it's uh, it's a really cool environment. Uh, people, companies, this so many guys are are in town that you can just meet up daily and do hikes and and uh, no, it's just a great great place for anybody who's into the outdoors. So we're all very happy. I think the girls are ready to see some uh, some greener grasses, and they're ready for spring and summer to hit and and do some hiking and, and get away from the cold. But overall, yeah. we're we're all very happy with with where we're at. That's good, man. I just wanted to hear about just you know because it's timely coming off a few weeks ago. Dan Staten put on the first elk shape camp, and you were a part of that. Um, I've talked to Dan about that. It sounds like it was a success, especially given that it was the first one and really a kind of a new concept. Um, what were your impressions of that coming out of it? Like, what did you think of it? Was it what you expected? How did you have a feel for like the participants and what they got out of that? I just love to hear your, um, your perspective on it since you were a part of it. Sure. Yeah, no, I think, uh, I think Dan did it very, very well. He, he started with a smaller group of guys. Um, I think he, he had it very well planned. I, Dan's, Dan's really good at what he does. He's, he's great at the fitness, great at the nutrition. He's, he's very direct. He's, he's a great teacher. And so, um, overall, I think for those two, two and a half days that we had there, I mean, I, everybody that I talked to, everybody that, um, you know, I had conversations with at the end of it was super happy with, with what they got out of that oak shape camp. Uh, there was a lot of information crammed into those two days, I think uh, I think it was fun because Dan mixed in workouts throughout each day, uh, had some shooting, um, went out to Spokane Valley Archery and got some uh, some lessons taught by Josh out there. 
and overall it was it was a it was a lot of information for guys trying to um cut the learning curve and um you know get in bag and elk this year there's I mean, people came from all around it was pretty incredible to see people would travel and um everybody's got different experiences and you know a lot of guys I, a similar story is i've put three four five years in the elk woods and i haven't been successful and um you know for a variety of reasons, um, could have been their fitness, could have been, uh, their calling could have been the mental, who knows, but uh, everything was covered in that, uh, in that, um, elk shape camp. As far as we had Dirk there working on some guys, I think people got a lot out of that, uh, for guys that are a little bit intimidated with a diaphragm call. Dirk's one of the better teachers and he uh, he got every call out there, and <clears throat> and I think he uh, he taught that very very well. And then and then Dan, you know, Dan is just he's just motivating. Um, you know, he he gets up there and he and he just he kind of relates elk hunting to life. Um, you know, treating treating it as a discipline. Um, you know, making sure that you're prepared year round, and uh, and elk season will come easy. So. Uh, I think everybody went away that I talked to with, they were just stoked about the whole weekend and it was, it was a lot of fun. Um, really good to kind of just talk with people and see what they were, uh, see what they were thinking going in and and coming out. I talked to several folks that felt like they were going to be shooting a whole heck of a lot better now than they were. Um, because we, one of the days when we were there at, uh, at the archery shop, uh, Josh went through everybody's form, uh, took video with their phones so they could see how they were shooting, how they were holding the bow, um, how much pressure they were putting on the string, um, you know, on their cheek, all those things. So they could kind of see what they were doing. And he went through step by step and kind of laid out maybe what they could change. Some guys may have needed a little shorter draw length, uh, shorten up the D loop, just all these little things that, you know, you just might not think about and, uh, tried to really get those guys walking out of there with a uh, a better idea on how to shoot better. So overall, great camp. Yeah, really, really enjoyed that. It, in your opinion, um, you know, you're talking with some guys that the, the the average guy who's been doing hunting for three to five years uh, and hasn't killed an elk. What, what do you think is the most consistent thing they're doing wrong? Oh man, most consistent. You know, I just honestly, I don't know. Obviously they're not getting shot, so it's not going to be their shooting. Um, a lot of guys just are not getting those bulls to come back. So it, it, depending on where they're hunting, but if it's in the North woods of Idaho or anything similar, it's the calling. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think, uh, paying attention to, yeah, I know when I started how I did it and it was wrong, it was completely wrong. And I think everybody kind of falls into that trap and Dirk explained um, different type scenarios on, you know, how to treat a bull, which is great because I think that's where most guys go wrong. They'll hear a bugle. Uh, they'll hit it with a bugle. They'll walk in 50 yards. They'll hit it with another bugle and they'll keep kind of pushing, pushing, pushing. And it's the same story from everyone. They just, the bull always goes the other way, uh, uh -huh. always takes its cows the other way. And so I think uh, kind of looking at, looking at ways on how to, how to treat that bull, treat that situation with your calling, um, getting in tighter before you just keep bombing bugles out. Um, you know, diff different, 
um, strategies, I think we'll get guys better at that. And instead of just banging their head against the wall and <laughs> just keep screaming and, and walking forward and keep screaming and walking forward, which I think is what everybody tends to do in the early years. And then eventually you kind of figure out that's, that's the wrong approach. Yeah. I have a ton of questions I want to ask you about just kind of some lessons, um, just in general with your hunting, Ryan, like mindset and all kinds of things. But first, like just to tie that in, walk me through your fall from like a high level. You hunted quite a few states, uh, had quite a few deer hunts. So what were those states? What were those species just from like fall of 18? Yeah. Um, yeah. First off, you know, I, I've never been one to be able to go around and hunt a whole pile of states. This is very new to me. Um, I'm, I'm loving it, uh, obviously. But uh, I was most of my life, it's always been just my state and then some Idaho and then some Montana built in late season. But uh, as of late, yeah, I, this year I drew another Nevada mule deer tag, early archery, August, which um, has become one of my absolute favorite times to hunt uh, just because of, you know, you get to see a lot of, a lot of animals, full velvet unpressured, just going about their business. Uh, it's all on you to make the right moves. And, uh, so that Nevada deer hunt was, was, it's become very special. I, I just absolutely love that time. And I've been very fortunate to draw Nevada for three years in a row. So this year, uh, I didn't think I would, but I did. And it was just a, you know, a, a unit that is as average as average gets, um, I guess in the way of Nevada. Um, but it, it took some time. It took, it took, you know, a lot of research and, and boots on the ground and figuring out some of the places that I had seen on the maps, maybe had some folks, maybe it didn't quite look like I thought it would, but, uh, I eventually I settled into some areas and, and found some, <clears throat> some great bucks and walked away from that first trip with a, uh, a really nice three by four, uh, really old mature buck. And, uh, and couldn't have been more pleased coming out of that state. So that was my first trip. That was early. Um, gosh, I don't remember when I tagged that buck, but it was early to mid August, um, probably 16th, 17th or somewhere in there. And then after that, I had a, I had a, uh, hunt with Mr. Lusk. So Jeff and I teamed up. I actually went straight from Nevada over to Colorado and again, I'd never hunted Colorado. Um, we drew, we put in on a tag. It was a one point unit. I had five points in Colorado, but I wanted to hunt with Jeff. He's a great guy. And, and I just wanted to hunt a unit that I might be able to go back to sometime. So we, uh, put in for that. We got drawn, went down there again. We, we kind of picked some, some places and the unit itself that was just extremely difficult. Like it had some wild country, steep, you know, open, open hillside stuff and big basins and just, you know, everything you think of when you go to a place like Colorado and, uh, and we picked some spots on the map. Fortunately, we, we found like our first spot that we picked, Jeff got there prior to me cause I was in Nevada and he, uh, he got up there, had some weather, had some fog stuck it out, um, and glassed up some great bucks in the, uh, kind of our number one spot that we had picked out that we had the highest hopes for and found some bucks. We, uh, we teamed up, got up in there. We had, uh, JR, a camera guy with us on that one. And man, 
we had daily stocks and on great bucks. It was a lot of fun. Um, I found a, just a very nice looking buck first day actually, um, in a, in a tucked away base and we split up. I went one way, boys went the other. Uh, I found this buck. He was just in this very precarious spot. There was no way to get to him without chopper, I guess, or some serious climbing gear dropping off some, some sheer cliffs. But, uh, it was, uh, it was, there was a, really nice big wide buck in there and then the buck that i called i just called it pretty boy because it was just like a perfect four point long tines big eye guards everything just that you think of that you want in the mule deer and uh so i left that buck i went back i helped the boys and we were glassing bucks and and jeff had several stocks that week um gosh i mean he uh, Jeff hadn't done a whole lot of that early season, um, archery stuff in the high country. And, and so, um, it was fun. I think he learned a lot. He had multiple stocks, like I said, and, and in the end he, he didn't come away with a buck. He had a really, really good shot. I think he knows he did everything right on this last day that he had and, and, uh, just very, very close, but, um, didn't quite work out. And then every day I, first thing I would go back into that basin and, and relocate that buck that I had seen that I wanted. And he just kept bedding in the same spot, which was a real bummer because every day I'd sit up there and watch him for hours and, and he wasn't putting himself in any kind of a spot for stocking. And there were some places in there that if he would go in bed, I'd have a really good shot at him. And every day it was just like groundhog's day. <laughs> every day he'd just keep going back to that same little, or near the same bed and he'd tuck himself up against these boulders and no ability to get above him or anything with the wind. But, um, all in all, the boys had to leave. I stayed, um, I think it was on day eight that, uh, that buck, one of those days I, I lost him. He, he bedded in, in a different area and I just could not relocate him. And I, I went around that basin um, from all sides looking in. I just couldn't pick him back up. And so that had me worried while well, I picked him up the next day. And um, in the end, on day eight, he finally put himself in a spot. And um, and I ended up getting down in on him and, and actually came from below and uh, had a little shoot that I could come up and, and cut side hill on him. And yeah, I ended up getting that buck and it was the, the buck that I just wanted more than anything. And I really wanted to put all my focus and effort in on that one buck and, and, and I got him and man, that was, uh, that was like a dream buck for me. Um, just a really pretty nice four point. And so that was, uh, that was my second hunt of the year. So I was feeling pretty good. Feeling like it should probably go all downhill from there. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so on, on that buck, like you, once you saw him, did you pretty much, you said that was your focus. Um, yeah. would you, were you really not even kind of looking for other deer, like poke your head over the other side of the ridge and you'd seen it. So, and, yeah. Yeah. Not really. I really wanted that one. There was a yeah. big buck in there with him, but it was just a really wide buck. It was probably a 30, 30 inch, 31 inch buck, but, um, I don't know, shorter tines, not, not as pretty and not just not as picture perfect in my mind as this one was. And no, I really wanted this one. Uh, mm. we had, man, we had found another great four by six. We'd found some older age bucks in other places and, and Jeff would go in on them and, 
there was one day where Jeff and I picked up multiple bucks and we both decided, all right, well, this would be kind of cool because I've got a big old buck over here bedded up in a spot that's questionable at best. And then Jeff was going after some bucks that uh, put themselves in a pretty good spot. And we figured, well, let's try to double this. And I will be honest, my heart was not in that stock whatsoever. I was very, I was just kind of going through the motions on that stock and hoping Jeff was going to uh, stick a buck and I wouldn't even be faced with the uh, dilemma of should I draw my bow. Um, but all in all that, Jeff did get, uh, did get a shot. It didn't happen, but <clears throat> my heart was not in that buck. I, I really wanted to stick with that one that I saw. I just, something special about him. So I, uh, I pretty much just, you know, gave my time to that one when he would bet up in that one spot for the day, I'd go back in that spot and glass for Jeff and, and watch him put stocks on bucks. And it was a lot of fun. I'm curious, Ryan, when you head into a new state, like you did to Colorado for the first time, uh, how firm is your plan or like the spot you've picked out ahead of time? Like how confident are you in that? And obviously you don't fully know till you get there. So when you get there, how much time do you give that? I mean, you said on this one, it, it all worked out. You spotted a good buck on the first day, but let's say you weren't seeing either quantity of deer or the quality of deer that you were after. Like how much time would you give a new spot in a new state that you've only essentially scouted from afar? Yeah, good question. I think, uh, you know, we had, we had a lot of spots picked out. Like I said, that one, we got real lucky and, um, it wasn't overloaded with folks or anything like that. I think if we would have pulled up there, and there would have been people all over it even with some great bucks in there i think we would have buggered out and wouldn't hit another spot um you know unpressured animals are where it's at it's just so much funner when you're not dealing with the worry of others right so um no we were fully prepared to pick up and go but we we got so lucky when and we did have a couple people come through um i think that first day we saw a couple guys come up the far ridge and and they disappeared, never saw them again. And uh, a couple hikers come through. But, uh, you know, honestly, if, if we find uh, that there's not some folks and there's there's a good buck in there, at least one good buck in there, I think we were willing to stick it out. And, um, you know, if you find that one special one, you just kind of have to dedicate your time to it. If we would not have seen any of the older age class bucks, I think we would have buggered out of there in a, in a day or two, quite honestly. Um, probably two or three really good glass and sessions. And if we're not picking up anything good in that country, um, I mean, let's say they're not that hard to pick up in that, uh, above tree line. Generally, you're going to, you're going to find them in a couple, three good glass and sessions. And, um, it seems like, uh, if you're not picking them up at that point, it's probably best to keep looking or, or bump a couple ridges over or just uh, go to a new spot altogether. But what would you define as a, a glassing session? A morning and an evening morning. and then yeah. another morning, something like that. Um, okay. You know, or even, even getting up there uh, midday, having that evening, the glass, and then that following morning, if you are overlooking a basin and, 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 and that, like I said, in that Colorado country with the, with the uh, tree line stuff above tree line, you're, you're, you're seeing most of what's there. I mean, we didn't, we saw most of the bucks that we were going for out of the gates. Um, we didn't have a whole lot of just new 
of showing up. And that was probably just because there weren't a lot of folks, you know, pushing bucks in and out. And, um, you know, I think, uh, I think a couple, three tops glass and sessions, and then we would have, uh, called it and probably went and tried to find an older age class somewhere else. So for guys who are newer to like high country stuff, um, I want to kind of dissect like your glassing strategy. So everything from what glass do you prefer to use to how do you pick your vantage point to, um, you know, do you start by targeting certain spots that look good when you're glassing or you just kind of grid the whole thing? Like let's get really nitty gritty on your approach and your glassing strategy. So um, I'm a big fan of 12s. I know and everybody's got their thing. Um, maybe it's because I'm old. I don't know. A lot of guys like eights. A lot of guys like tens. I ran tens for probably most of my life, and then I went to twelves, and I've just never looked back. I guess I think uh, I think those work great for me. I'm running. I'm just running uh, a pair of twelve by fifties, uh, the Vortex, and and they're they're great. I run them on a tripod. Um, I've got a spotter. Uh, I, I am such a weight weenie though guys that i love that little spotter i like the vortex little 50 millimeter so um i'll pack that if i think i can get away with it uh, i did bring the big boy spotter in colorado with that big country but most times I, i'll just take the little guy and that with a pair of 12s and it's pretty much going to tell me if i if i should go for that buck or not um, as far as strategies though, man, I think finding that, that perfect glassing point where you can see most of the country obviously is, is extremely important, uh, in an area, it's not going to blow your wind into, or, you know, into a spot where you're going to do some damage. But, um, you know, I think that's probably the key is, is finding that glassing point. And that's just, you know, pretty self-explanatory, I guess, with the highest point that you can find or whatever point gives you the advantage and looking, looking down on, on the, uh, the entire basin. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I think, uh, I think the tripod thing is huge. Um, you know, it's such a big advantage to be able to do that and, you know, get into that oak brush and really try to pick out tines because, um, what we found in, in, even in Colorado is some of those mornings where, you know, you think you're seeing everything that you're, you're not seeing some of those bucks have already bedded down early morning. Um, when you're just getting after it and some of the older bucks were already in the oak brush, they were already bedded and it was about picking up velvet tines in that oak brush. And fortunately that oak brush is at the right level and you can kind of pick those tines up over it for the most part, not always, but, um, you know, just being real diligent about looking in those brushy type places and, um, fortunately that time of year, they jump out at you if they're out in the open. So it's pretty easy. How worried are you about being, um, when you're up on the ridge glassing, are you trying to be, you sneaking around, making sure you don't get silhouetted or anything, or if, if they're the basins, you know, half a mile, three quarters of a mile away, are you even worried about that? Um, I think, you know, if it's, if it's too far away, I mean, skylining yourself is, is definitely important. I think maybe I think maybe some guys think it's it, like you need to crawl over every single hill, even though you're a mile from. I don't think it's that important. Yeah. Um, animals go up and over all the time, and at that kind of distance, I I don't know that the deer are too you know keen to what it actually is going up and over the top. But um, yeah, absolutely, always always aware of the skylining. Um, 
you know, if you're, if you got a basin right below you and you're, and you're up on the ridge looking down, generally they're already looking at you for sure. Uh, if it's close enough. So yeah, I, I think it's, it's, it's something you always got to be aware of, but, um, some people get crazy with it and, you know, you're, you're still a mile away and, and, uh, and they jump out of their shoes if you skyline yourself. So. <laughs> <laughs> so when you sit down morning glassing session, you're kind of first skinning more open country, looking for deer up feeding. Obviously, as it gets later, potentially the deer bedding, you're then looking to those bedding spots and kind of in that brush that you talked about. Um, yeah. As you do that, are you are you kind of grid crossing the, you know, the basin? Do you're just picking from spot to spot? Do you have any sort of like strategy or formula of covering country with glass yeah it's always usually the same you know you get up there um use your eyeballs first uh, pick out anything that jumps out at you with your eyeballs and then um always looking for those spots where uh you know the getaway routes you know if a spot that you're looking at the edges um so you don't miss something if you're if you're gridding through the center of the heart of that basin um you know obviously you should have picked apart the edges first, just in case one was walking out and you'll never see them again. Always kind of going, um, starting at the outside and, and then going to the center. But, um, yeah, nothing, nothing too crazy as far as the strategy, as far as gridding. It's, it's, uh, sometimes it's side to side, sometimes up and down, but, um, I always do like to just kind of visual, see it with my eyes first and then, uh, and then hit those places where they might, be a couple seconds from getting away from you or you just won't see him forever. What what about camp site selection in terms of uh relative glassing points? And obviously that can change based on the, how the country's laid out, but in general, like let's say in Colorado, how far away did you guys have camp set up versus your best glassing point for the morning? Yeah, so most places um you know, you, you really want to be careful where you camp. Obviously it's, it's very important that your that your stank isn't going into where you're expecting to find some critters. So I, I'm not afraid of camping a mile out away from the basin, um, which is what we try to do in most places. Colorado was kind of an exception this year. We, we found this nice little swale. Um, the wind seemed to be right and, uh, we weren't too horribly far away from where we were glassing but we were picking the bucks up far enough away where they had no effect, um, from our scent, you know, going back and forth on that swale. But, uh, overall, I think it's better to be safe than sorry. Um, camp further away, throw the headlight on in the morning and get to your glassing spot. Um, you know, even if you do have to cover a pretty dang good distance, keeping your stank out is huge. So, um, if you're going for those unpressured animals, but generally I'll just go on the safe side and, you know, sometimes you spend 30, 40 minutes in the morning getting to your glassing spot. And that's just part of the game if you want to be very cautious. And that's how I treat Nevada. Um, I'm always way, way, way probably further than I need to be away from the basins that I want to be glassing. And it's it's worked out really well. When you're glassing, spot a buck, a buck you're uh, interested in, we'll put it that way. What what all goes through your decision-making process on if that buck is killable, where he's at. And I guess the role of not only maybe is he killable, but when do you actually decide to make that approach? So let's say that that buck you spotted the first day was in a decent spot. Do you default to let's go now, or I have multiple days. Let's see what he does tomorrow. Like let's play that even, um, 
you know, more patient, more cautious. Yeah. I'm, I think, uh, what's worked well for me is, is playing it very, very cautious, like probably too slow, but, um, I really do like to just pay attention to what that critter's doing, what those critters are doing for a while, for days. If, if I have the time, it's pretty rare that, uh, first pick up a buck and just go for it unless he just puts himself in a great spot that first first time you see him but it seems like uh most of the times mark uh you, you find them and you tend to watch them and try to figure out their patterns and some of those older bucks they just don't tend to put themselves in the best pl- place you know every day but generally eventually they they will so um i think I don't know if there's like a general rule for how much time you give them and, and you pay attention, but uh, thinking back on bucks of the past, some of the better bucks, it's it, it seems to take quite a few days of just watching them, um, you know, figuring out their patterns, figuring out where they're bedding. A lot of them will bed in the same two beds um, every day. Uh, they'll go back to the same ones. And then they'll they'll throw a little uh, wrench in there and they'll go hit a completely new one on occasion, which sometimes that's the one that uh, – you know, puts them at jeopardy. So, uh, overall, I, I think that's been the most effective for me. And it's honestly, it's the most fun for me. Um, because I do like to just watch the critters and pay attention to them and, and, uh, see their behavior and how they act and who's the dominant buck in the basin. And, um, I think it's a funner hunt when you're not so rushed and you just see a buck and you just boom, go for it. I think it's, uh, it's a lot better experience when you just get to sit back and, and uh, take it all in, watch him where he's going, all his mannerisms, and then eventually figure out, you know, your game plan as far as I think you got a lot higher success rate at uh, putting the stock on a buck that you've um, had a few days of history with and kind of know exactly what his route is. It's like that Colorado buck. I think you mentioned for three or four days he was doing the same thing, wasn't in a good spot. Then you lost him a day. Like if that happens, say you're on day four, day five, do you wrestle with, oh man, is he going to come back or you're just pretty confident he'll kind of, he'll, he'll show up again. You'll kind of make this happen. I'm just curious about how patience and questioning comes into play in terms of also feeling confident that you can make something like happen. Or do you start to think, uh, man, like that fourth or fifth day, I can't find him. Maybe I should look over the ridge type thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> Those seeds of doubt go into your head a lot. I mean, I lost him for one day and it almost puts you into panic mode, right? Like, Oh man, I did. I screw up. Should I have been more aggressive? Should I have went in and at least made a, a stock that could have been a 50, 50 either way. Um, I think that's unavoidable. You're always going to have those, those, um, wrestle with those type things. But, uh, I think, you know, obviously when, when you, when I've lost him, I, you're always looking at other basins, looking for other bucks looking, but, um, I just, yeah, you just kind of know he's, that was his plan. Unless something happened where some guys rolled in and they bumped him. I just figured he would be back. Um, something just felt right. Like he will be back in that basin. They're untouched. There's been nobody in there. They're just going about their daily. And, uh, and so I, I was just well prepared to just stick it out. And, you know, maybe if I would have lost him for three or four days, you know, things would have changed. Uh, I had other bucks that I could have gone for. But uh, I think being patient with some of them big bucks, um, it really 
Yeah, I think that's the key to kind of consistently trying to get in on those ones. Um, you know, I, I can't say that there's a, a formula um, that works every time. Uh, I think, you know, it's just I don't know if it's instinct or it's gut feeling or what, but more often than not, I uh, find a buck that's unpressured. You're probably going to probably going to see him again if if nothing's come through. Um, I had a similar experience with a buck in Nevada uh, a couple few years ago, and you know it was a buck that <clears throat> I got in on, and um, and ended up he ended up blowing out of there. I I came to full draw on this thing, and I had him at a good range, and and he stood up out of his bed, and there was just a quakey in front of his his vitals. I couldn't get that shot, and and um, he he knew what was up, and he b- bounced out, and you know, being diligent, thinking he would probably end up back in that basin. It might take a few days. It worked out. And six days later, that buck came right back into that basin. Um, and I mean, I don't even know the hours I put in sitting above that basin, just thinking about going to other places, thinking about other bucks I'd seen, but I really wanted that one. And, uh, he said day six came around and and uh, magically that buck came back, he reappeared and he ended up bedding right back in that same bed where I had that chance at him before. And I took a little different approach on this one and ended up um, arrowing that buck. And, and so, um, I don't know, I think that uh, there's something to the phrase. I know uh, old Brian Barney uses it a lot and it's, you know, patience kills the buck. And it, I think it's very true. Um, it's definitely worked out for me. And there, there are so many times though, Mark, that, you know, you're sitting there thinking, man, should I be going for something else? Um, yeah, I guess, I guess in those cases you got to think about, are you willing to eat your tag and, you know, throw all your eggs in that basket. And and once you've picked out that one specific buck, you're willing to put in as many days as it takes. And that Colorado buck was just that I, something about that buck, he just had a really cool look to him. He just seemed like the perfect perfect looking buck for me um double throat patch and old and um just a very pretty buck and uh, i would have i would have happily gone away from that hunt and not filled my tag but i wanted to put every day into that specific one even if there would have been a couple days in there where he disappeared what was it uh that flipped the switch when you decided to make a move on that buck kind of walk us through what you're looking at um when you're deciding yeah, I think that buck's in a good spot. And then also with that, like, how are you planning that stock? And just in terms of practical stuff, in terms of like picking out markers and, and looking at terrain, um, what all, how does that begin for you when you actually decide to make a move? So what happened with that one was um, he had been, like I mentioned, he had been bedding up right against this rock face and he had these little cuts. And there were times of the day where he would move into these little cracks in the wall basically and you could have scanned if you hadn't watched him go into those cracks of the wall you would have never seen this buck if you just came up to that basin and and threw your glass up i don't even know how he got his antlers into those cracks but he would tuck himself into those things um you know into the shady part of those cracks and and eventually he'd just roll over to another little crack and and it was just a a crazy spot no no opportunities whatsoever to get there um 
Now, eventually what he did, one of the, that, that eighth day is he came down off of that ledge a little bit, got into the browse that he'd been feeding on, um, you know, all night and in the mornings. And, and he ended up working, uh, to the left of this pretty thick cover. Um, and he bedded on a little crease on the left side of this browse and, and what getting what that what I saw in that and that that was like my ultimate uh, because there was a chute that came down to his right and it was a rock field um, kind of just a dirty rock field and and that browse was pretty pretty high um, you know four or five feet tall in places and it was like the perfect chute to I could have I had a spot where I could drop into that basin and come from below. And work up that crack and then and then work over to the left and and get above him and and the wind although the wind was going up um the way that basin laid out the uh the wind wasn't going to be a problem it was going to work up that that same chute that i was going up and it wasn't going to hit him because i was coming from the top so i was uh i was making my line down i never got below him to where he would get my wind and it was just the perfect scenario. It was the only, it was really the only scenario I could see, uh, every day I would look at that and say, man, I hope he beds just to the left of that thicker brows. And, um, that's where he did. And it was a half a second, like gotta go right now. And, and, um, and that worked out. So, uh, definitely, you know, you, when you have that much time with a buck, you're looking at all the different places where you may have a shot. Um, and I can't tell you how many times I looked at that where he had bed every day and tried to figure out a way, but there was just no way. I know I would have blown him out and it would have been probably gone forever. So, so stocks, most of, most of the, most of the way pre-planned whether before you even move your feet, right? I mean, you're picking out like the exact approach and everything as you're glassing for the most part. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I, you know, if, you know, I know a lot of people take pictures and I'll take pictures on occasion of, of the, um, the area down there. And so, you know, which rocks that, uh, that are going to give you some, some cover, which bushes are going to give you some cover, um, you know, really thinking out every 10 feet that you're going in that stock and, and where that's going to put you and and if it's going to give you a, a chance. So, you know, you have so much time that, uh, that's why taking the days and, and just figuring out the mannerisms, figuring out the layout of that basin and seeing where other bucks bed. A lot of times, you know, if another buck is bedded in this spot that next day, maybe, maybe the big buck is going to be bedded in that spot, which is a gettable spot. So just paying attention to the other deer, what they're doing, where they're bedding, um, looking for those little spots that give you, are going to give you an opportunity to, uh, to make a play. Uh, and then obviously, you know, there's, there's always other factors. There's always other deer getting in your way or, or betting mm -hmm. where you're not going to get in there. But, um, absolutely. I think that's probably one of the biggest factors is, um, is trying to eliminate those low risk stocks or those high risk stocks and, and going with the more, uh, low risk, um, where you just feel like, man, if I can get to that spot and I think I can, I, I'm going to get that buck and being very confident. Um, I've kind of gone away from being very super aggressive on mule deer anymore. Um, especially when you locate a real good one, it's, it's almost seems to work better if you just spend more time, go slower, be more patient, um, you know, take more days. And that, that seems to uh, kill the buck in the end. It has for me in the 
last few years anyway. Yeah. Do you find um, similar wind wind patterns from state to state as far as thermals and times of the afternoon it picks up? Or is it already spending a few days? Like, imagine while you're sitting there glass and you're really paying attention to what the wind's doing and, you know, yeah. what time of day. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And in that country, um, you're constantly having storms come through. So, um, you know, directionals are huge. Uh, if you can get a good directional with, you know, wind and all that, sometimes those are your best, best times. Um, especially if it's coming from a direction where it kind of changes what typically happens in that basin. You know, I would have loved to have a day where uh, the wind was just rolling down, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and that could have easily happened with a certain directional, but uh, I never had a storm come in that direction. So uh, just never, never played out that way, but it could have. But always paying attention to those, um, you know, storms coming in from one direction or another, a lot of times it is very similar um, daily. You'll have them come in from the same direction, but I think every place is different. I've had areas where thermals, you know, do what they always do, and that's up up with the heat and down. And then sometimes it's it gets a little wanky in those upper elevations, and and uh, clouds roll over and things change a little bit. But uh, man, there's nothing like a good directional to, to lay the noise down for you and, and kind of confuse their senses. So, um, I think those are some of the best times to get in on a critter is when you got the winds kicked up and, and, uh, it kind of messes the thing, messes the, the basin up. How do you balance, uh, like tunnel vision focus on that target buck during a stock versus keeping aware of your surroundings i mean are you constantly just kind of doing both right like trying to keep tabs on the buck trying to look in every direction as you make each move and obviously the slower you're going the more easily you can process all that but is that kind of the general the way you balance things in terms of your focus during a stock yeah i think ho hopefully you will have picked out the bucks prior to your stock that could get in your way not always um you know, there's always going to be mistakes made on stocks where you didn't see a certain critter and they blow you out. <clears throat> I think it's unavoidable, but hopefully you will have had enough time um, to kind of assess the situation, assess where the other deer are, where they're bedded. Um, now, of course, you always have to be ridiculously careful because bet bucks get up and they rebed and they'll put themselves right in front of where you're supposed to be going. But um, I, I think snail's pace and and running your binoculars a lot even even you know from 200 yards out and in i think it's it's not going to hurt you for the most part there's always a chance you might get up and, and relocate but i think being diligent about that um i think any experienced mule deer will tell you um i mean multiple 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 times that uh the stock blows up when they don't see a different deer and that's the one that they're always focused on the buck that they're going for instead of the bucks on the, on the outer perimeter of that buck. So, um, those are the ones that can be, that can just ruin a whole situation. So yeah, extremely important to pay attention to that and, uh, always think about the other eyeballs and not just the one that you're going for, for sure. If you've closed the distance on that buck and he's still bedded, is that just a sit and wait situation? And oftentimes from watching this buck so much, do you feel like you kind of understand his timing and when he might get up and move? Like, say you've closed the distance, he's bedded, you just don't have that shot opportunity yet. What's what's going through your mind at that point? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, more often than not, you almost can tell when they're going to stand up. They, they, they tend to get, 
there it's always completely sporadic as far as you know time throughout the day or whatever but um a lot of times you know you may be parked on a buck for an hour or two or three and um you know it's hard to stay completely at the ready but keeping your eyeballs on the rack typically they start to sway back and forth um they get a little more erratic almost a nervous or or antsy type look to them um you know, with their mannerisms and, and you can see that in their antlers moving back and forth. So you can kind of know when they're about to stand up sometimes. Um, and, and, and that's when obviously you're going to get your shot. But, uh, you know, I, I don't know of any, it's, it's completely sporadic when they decide to stand up for sure. Um, I've never noticed a pattern as far as midday stocks, you know, um, those noon 10 to 10 to three type stocks where, I, yeah, it's it's more about just staying on them, getting in tight, and then just waiting for them to stand up. And and uh, you know, obviously, it, it is really hard to be 100%, you know, completely focused, hand on your release the whole time. And um, you know, you'll get to where you just kind of know, you kind of get a feeling like, okay, he's he's getting a little bit antsy there. I think he's going to stand up here in a couple seconds, and that's when you get ready. I'm curious. Say the buck's standing or buck's giving you those signs. You think he's getting ready to stand. You're clipping in that release. You're standing up. You're getting a full draw. What's going through your mind at that point? Do you have like a shooting mantra? Do you just don't think anything? You're just focused. I'm just, it's so interesting to talk to guys, especially on the archery side about kind of like mindset in a shot opportunity. And what does that look like for you? Yeah, definitely a mantra. Um, I think, you know, you have so much time and, um, when you're in tight with your, when you're within 40 yards, um, hopefully you will have thought of every single thing possible. I always clip my release in well ahead of time. Um, I run a thumb release and I, I make sure that that thing can't touch anything. I run rabbit fur over my, um, anything plastic where that, that thumb release, once I attach it could tick on, uh, so I'll run, you know, bunny fur up my, um, my quiver and just make sure that while it's on there, um, you know, it's not going to tick anything. And so, uh, overly cautious on any little noise that you could possibly make, um, you know, ripping your bino cover off and just running the straps. Sometimes the bino covers are, they're a bit noisy and, and they'll get you on occasion. Um, same with the range finder cover. I've kind of gone away from those, um, you know, with, I've just got this little, little, uh, range finder holder where it's completely silent. I don't have to pull it out of anything and it's, there's no rubbing of, um, Cordura or anything like that. And same with the bino harness. Um, and I think trying to, trying to come up with every, situ- every situation that could happen there, that's going to be laid out in front of you, you know, you're, you're tight on that deer and, you're thinking about every possible shot. Um, if he gets up and starts walking right away, you're going to have to stop him. Um, and you've, you know, I know what I do when I, when I'm in that tight and I am hyper-focused and I've thought about my shot. I've thought about left hand relaxed and pulling through the shot and all those tight things. And, um, and you know, your shooting sequence and staying relaxed. Um, I, I think everybody's kind of got their own thing as far as what they do. Um, so that they're not making a, a forced shot or punching the trigger or anything crazy like that. And, and mine is always making sure that uh, I'm taking deep breaths, I'm relaxed, left hand relaxed, and pulling through the shot, um, you know, nothing in a hurry. And, 
And, it, and it's always worked for me. And it, I, I do like to kind of think about every single situation, what's going to happen. If he jumps up quick, um, if he goes this way, that way, um, what am I going to have to do if I have to stop him, blah, blah, blah. And, and so, uh, yeah, it's it's every case, every scenario is different. But, um, you know, you have nothing but time. So, you know, really thinking about every single situation that could happen before you is is huge. And being completely ready, Um you know, hopefully you will have had time to, to range find everything and, and not have to do it when he stands up because, uh, that's some, those are some valuable seconds right there. Yeah. What would you do to stop him? Just uh, is from a, just a noise yeah. that you're going to make just a double sound yeah. or what's worked for you? Oh man. I sometimes, um, <laughs> yeah, it's just any kind of a noise. I mean, just a, you just anything that'll, that'll get him to stop. Uh, mule deer are pretty good about stopping at anything, especially when they're unaware. Um, if they're just walking, they'll they'll stop with anything, any kind of a mouth noise. So, um, you know, mine mine ends up sounding like a sheep every time. I don't know why, <laughs> but it is. But uh, it seems to work. So, um, yeah, whatever you need to do. I know, you know, back back in the rifle years where I used to do that, you know, you could generally stop them with a whistle. Um, but, uh, no, in tight with a bow, it's, it's basically just a man yeah. and, uh, it gets him to get him to stop and look at you. If you have to do that, preferably you'd like to not ever right. make any noise and just, you know, right. get them completely unaware of any presence. I'm sure guys are going to be curious just since you mentioned it specifically, your, your bino setup and then your, uh, your rangefinder harness, what products are those that you're using? Um, so I've got, man, the, the rangefinder. I found this old, there's a company, it's not even around anymore. It's just a little piece of Cordura that uh, wraps around my harness. It's got a little magnet in there, but you never hear it. So I got a little magnet on my rangefinder, and then there's a magnet inside this little webbing. And that straps right to, if, if I got my pack, I'll keep it on my pack. Or I can take it off and just, uh, I can strap it right to my belt loop on my pants and uh and it's very very quiet and it slips right in and out without any noise whatsoever um i don't have to unbuckle anything or anything like that and then the the uh um binocular harness uh you know i have yet to see a bino harness that's that's so quiet um that you're not gonna the deer aren't gonna hear it inside of 40 those are hard to find. Um, I used to run an old saddle cloth sheath over the outside of my binoculars, which was pretty quiet, but I kind of got away from that even and, and decided on stock. I'm just going to run it on the strap. So I've got this, you know, just, a um, I don't even know what it's called, a bino shield or something like that. I just, I just run it to where, you know, I can pull my glass up and it never has to go back in the case. Um, you know, pulling them out of the case in tight, dumping them back into the case, I don't know if, I mean, just try it and try to be extremely quiet. If there's no wind and it's completely quiet, those mule are going to hear that. And it's, it's mm. shockingly noisy. So, um, being aware of that, you know, practicing that if you're in tight and wanting to be completely quiet, I dare anybody to keep their binos in their bino harness or in their, yeah, in their bino harness and, and try to be completely silent when you're in super, super tight on a deer. Um, not that you're going to always need to pull your binos out, but sometimes you do. Um, you know, sometimes you're, when you're in that oak brush or that browse and, and you're trying to pick up tines and you're in tight, um, you know, I just prefer not to have any harness at all in those scenarios. 
just rip it off before the stock. Absolutely. To wrap up, Ryan, man, this has been awesome. We did a budget podcast episode a while ago, just on different budget gear recommendations. And one of the questions we got afterwards, I thought was really interesting. It was basically like, yeah, the budget gear is great, but this listener was basically asking about what are those items that stick out specifically that mm-hmm. are higher dollar that are worth every penny. Um, and so I've just wanted to ask that to different guests over time just to get like what comes to mind. Um, and so for you, like what are, what's something that's worth spending the money on? And obviously for you personally, but maybe just as a recommendation for the guys here in this, it's like budget gear is great, but for you, Ryan, this has been worth every penny. Oh man. Hmm. Gosh, budget gear is great, but obviously, I mean, I could go with the boots, backpack and glass. Those are easy. I think spending money on those is huge. Those are some of the most important pieces. Um, but then again, saying that some, some of the best boots are not that expensive. So (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I don't know. It's whatever works for you, but, uh, you know, glass backpack, those two, it's, it's really, tough to skimp, um, and get the quality that you want out of those two things. Um, I will throw in one piece that I know I don't think everybody has or uses. Uh, I've talked about it a little bit, but those micro spikes, man, those things are awesome. They're, mm-hmm. oh, yeah. they're, oh, they're not expensive, I guess they're only 70 bucks, but man, they will save your butt in a lot of scenarios. So, um, yeah, you've talked about that before. Like when are you, when are you running that? I mean, I guess to me, I imagine that's just on snowy ground, but you're running it on. on oh, man, I'm running it on wet grass, spring bear. Um, yeah, obviously icy mornings, uh, slick trails coming down with a pack load of meat on, um, wet yellow grass. We, uh, we ran them in the church that one year and they just saved your biscuit. I mean, it's just, it's a game changer. And, you know, in Washington, we ran them for spring bear and berry fields where, those slopes are steep and those things just keep you upright. And, um, you know, they weigh about a pound. So you're, you're adding a little weight to your pack, but they're cheap. They're really, really durable. And, uh, man, they'll just save you if, if, you know, you get into those certain situations where you're just sliding a lot. And honestly, we've ran them on, uh, coming down, bouncing through rocks with weight in our packs and, just wet dirt and, and rocky situations and, and they work great. They just stick you to those rocks. And, uh, surprisingly you'd think you'd break every single chain link off of those, um, Cthulhu micro spikes, but you don't, I don't know why they're just very, very tough. And I'm always surprised they don't shear those things off, but I've never even bent one. So <clears throat> that's just one odd piece that I know Joe and I have always <laughs> used. And I don't know that you'll find micro spikes in anybody's packs. Yeah, have you ran other, <laughs> Like I would just I just pulled up an image of those and I have some yak tracks. Is that what it is? Yeah, yeah. I think you're right, Steve. Yeah, yeah yak tracks. Similar yeah. design, but uh, you know, different. Have you ran other versions of this? I have. Yeah, I've never had. <clears throat> I tried some yak tracks once and um, they did not hold up at all. Okay. Um, they, I don't know why, um, and they definitely don't have the bite of the Catulas. There's a bunch of different companies out there now similar to the Catulas that might even have a little more aggressive spike on the bottom. Um, saw some guys out here the other day on the trail and they had some different, different designs they'd picked up from somewhere and very, very similar to the Catula design, but uh, a little bit more aggressive spikes. And um, 
you know, I don't know if that's necessary or, or good or bad, but Katua's have always treated me good. And, um, you know, whatever that little spike length is, a little over a quarter inch, I guess. And, and it just works. And, um, yeah, like I mentioned, wet grass is, it is awesome to have those things on your feet. Um, you know, coming down steep, um, wet grass and, and that could come at any time of year. You know, you get that in September, you get that in the late season. So, yeah, just in searching real quick, it looks like there's a, like one Ryan that might be a little bit bigger. There's a hill sound. They're called trail crampons, but they're basically the same thing as micro spikes, but bigger spikes. And looks like there's yep. quite a few out there. Yeah. So I don't think I answered your question as far as no, that. No, I think but, you did. Yeah. yeah I mean, I think yeah. last on the expensive pieces. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's just, I mean, I think I thought it was a really good question for guys that are newer, especially it's like, yeah, I want to save money where I can, but at the same time, where can I get in trouble by saving money or, you know, what's worth the investment basically. So I'm just always curious to kind of hear that. I don't think there's one answer. I mean, clothing is as well. Um, you know, I think being comfortable up there is huge. I think that helps your mental game a lot. Being comfortable, staying dry, um, having a clothing that, you know, you're not obviously cotton type scenario, like back in the day when you were just always kind of wet and, and gross, uh, you know, the clothes they got out now are, are amazing and they got everything you need to uh, stay comfortable for long durations. And, you know, the Merino wool is huge. Um, I think everybody should be running Merino wool these days. Uh, it eliminates the stink factor and it's just like one of the best insulating layers you could have. So that's huge. Right. But uh, yeah, clothing, you could definitely drop some cash on clothing and, and you're going to be happy about it in the long run. If you've been running, you know, your cheapo, um, cotton type, whatever stuff from years past. I think, I think clothes are, have come a long way and, and they make life a lot easier in the Hills these days. Do you, you mentioned, um, packing a lightweight spline scope. Are you very, very conscientious of weight when you're loading up your pack of the truck? Um, yeah, you know, it always tends to be the same. I think the only X factor in weight now, you know, typically it's in that 35 to 40 pound range. It's how much how long are you going? How much food are you taking? Yeah. Um, food is that, is that one piece where it just starts piling weight on. If you're, if you're beyond a week, eight, 10 days, can't get, avo- can't avoid that. But, um, yeah, I think always very conscientious of the weight. If I can pack that smaller spotter, um, I run, I'll run that if possible, unless I'm in Nevada or Colorado where, you know, you may be having to look a mile away type things and then a bigger, bigger, like an 85 or something like that, or a 65 will work great. But, um, yeah, always conscientious. I know I picked up a, uh, that six, two, four slick tripod from you, Steve, mm-hmm. uh, last year I started running that and, um, I love that thing, man. That yeah. thing was uh, added a little bit of weight to where I, what I was running before, but, uh, man, it's just, it st- steadies everything out really nice and super happy with that purchase. Yeah. You were using that, just like a vortex aluminum one or something before, right? Yeah. 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 And that was about weight, you know, that vortex one parked at two pounds. So super light, but, but it is the aluminum one. You get a little bit of a, a little bit of a shake. Um, mm-hmm. definitely not as stable. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, you don't always have to have the really nice tripod, but man, that one sure was nice, especially if there's a little bit of a wind or yeah. or whatever, and and it just kind of stabilizes everything, takes that shake out of it. Yeah, absolutely. Ryan, great stuff, man. Really appreciate the time. Uh, if listeners want to 
follow along, see your adventures. Cause I know you have some great stuff planned for 2019 this year. What's the best way to kind of follow you? Yeah, definitely got some big plans this year. It's going to be a good one. Um, so yeah, just Instagram, just a healthy hunter, um, hunt, harvest health. Uh, my wife kind of runs that Instagram and she does amazing work on the website that we have there as well. And, and, uh, then of course we do the podcast. So, and that's just hunt, harvest health. Well, that's a wrap guys. Thank you so much for tuning in. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button. If you have any questions, comments, feedback, suggestions, uh, shoot us an email to podcast at xomountaingear.com. If you're enjoying the show, it would help us tremendously if you could leave a review in iTunes or wherever else you might be listening to this. Let's catch you next week. Tune back in. We'll have an all new episode next week for you.